Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. We're just going to be looking at verses 21 through 26 this morning. And you can find it on page 529 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Friends, what are you afraid of? What is it that causes your fear? Like, what, what are those things that really just kind of keep you up at night? Those things that, that give you anxiety, uh, that cause you to worry and lament uh, and just kind of grieve life? I asked my kids this question uh, during, during lunch one, one day this week. What are you afraid of? And, and I won't go into the details about all of the answers so as not to embarrass them, but um, you know, we talked about everything from getting chased and bitten by dogs on the neck, which really happened, to zombies. Um, we talked about things like uh, failure. We talked about loss. We talked about death. We, we talked about just the shame and guilt of knowing that you've committed sin and you don't want other people to know. It was an amazing conversation in light of that. And, and through it all, it was kind of cool because it, at some points there was just a little bit of a difficulty admitting that, yeah, I'm afraid. But as the more and more we talk, the more we realize, man, we're, we're actually afraid of a lot of things, aren't we? And I pray that the Lord really uses that in our lives just to kind of encourage us to admit at first that we're, uh, we're afraid. But what are you afraid of? I mean, when you think about your life, what desires, what plans, what thoughts, what beliefs lead you to become anxious or worrisome? Many times we go through life and, and we just kind of assume that we're not afraid. We just kind of deny the reality of our fear. It's not going to you know, really bother us that much when, when in reality, our lives are filled with fear. Uh, and that's especially true in our culture. I mean, when you think about it, we're a culture that thrives off of fear, okay? I mean, watch the media. It's like media is there to promote paranoia. Uh, or, or, for example, the phobia list. Uh, I love phobia words. They just like, it, it's just kind of a, you know, it's just fun for me to read these and kind of laugh at what they are. The phobia list keeps growing. There's now over 650 types of phobia, though it's becoming increasingly confusing as to what is truly a phobia and what is not. See, I used to think that phobias meant that like this sort of life debilitating, stop you in your tracks, deep fear, consuming fear over some particular issue, like a fear of heights, right? I, I kind of get that. But now there's, there are phobias like the fear of peanut butter getting stuck to the roof of your mouth, right? I mean, uh, you know, like, it used to be my favorite, my favorite phobia was pantophobia, the fear of everything, right? That's apparently what Charlie Brown had. But there's all sorts of other funny ones. There's like papophobia, which is the fear of the Pope, because he's a really scary guy, you know? Um, there's, uh, there's paranomasiaphobia. I, I really like that one. That's the fear of puns. And so around here, we call that uh, Keithophobia, right? Um, you know, but my new favorite one, my new favorite is Phobologophobia. Phobologophobia, which is a fear of phobia words. So, you know, I can't imagine anyone sort of stopping in their tracks when you say a phobia word, but, you know, you never know. Um, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, I think most of us, when we look at our lives, we wouldn't say, you know, I have this debilitating fear, this, this life-stopping fear of any one thing. Though you might be afraid to get on a plane, or you might be a, 
you know, afraid of, of spiders or something like that. And, um, and that's all right. But, but the reality is when I'm talking about fear, I'm not talking about those phobias. I'm talking about those, those fears in life that are much, much more common. Those that we face every single day and don't really even kind of acknowledge that they're there, but yet they creep in and they drive and they control us. Things like fear of failure. Anybody just kind of go in life and just not being afraid at all that everything that you do is going to come crashing to the ground, right? I'm a church planter. I live in a fear of failure, right? Uh, fear of the unknown, fear of the future, what's going to happen to me? There's a, maybe it's you're afraid of uncomfortable situations, anything that's new, anything that's different, anything that's kind of awkward that's just you're not really used to. You're afraid of that and you avoid it. Maybe you fear for safety, from some dangers or calamities. And those are, you know, many times legitimate. We don't need to freak out about making sure that, you know, checking our car seats for our kids every time we get in, you know, to make sure that it's like up to code and all of that. That can kind of be excessive, but, you know, that's culture we live in. But um, maybe you fear sickness or pain or death. Maybe you're like me and you just fear even feeling, you know, sort of giving the appearance of, of weakness or neediness. Maybe you fear things like man, right? Fear rejection, fear disapproval, fear judgment, fear public embarrassment or shame. Maybe you're afraid of loss, the loss of relationships, the loss of material goods, the loss of security, the loss of status. Perhaps you you fear wasting your life. You look back over the course of your days and you realize, man, my life was just, it didn't really amount to much. Or maybe you fear being unloved, being lonely. Or maybe you're the opposite extreme. You actually fear loving because you're afraid you're going to get hurt. Friends, in all of these ways and in so many more, we can operate out of a persistent and daily fear. And it is a far bigger reality than any of us would care to admit. Fear can and fear does control us. But friends, it does not have to. Perfect love casts out all fear. And God has given us all that we need to free us from fear so that we might live in the fear of the Lord. And so I want us to embrace this this morning. Guys, this is a big deal. I have conversations with you. I I hear how things are going in your life. I I see the worries. I see the anxieties. And I know that this is an ever-present reality. And I want this truth from this passage to bring life to our souls and to free us from fear. And so the hope that from our passage, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, the hope that it offers us is this, that taking hold of God's wisdom frees us from fear. It's very, very simple, but very, very profound. Taking hold of God's wisdom frees us from fear. And so let's read our passage, but for context, I want us to read chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. So Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. 
The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And here's our passage for this morning. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and he will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Taking hold of God's wisdom frees us from fear. And it does so in this passage in four different ways. God's wisdom gives life to the soul. God's wisdom provides security from falling. God's wisdom grants rest without fear. And God's wisdom gives confidence in the midst of the unexpected. Now we're going to deal... Largely, we we'll spend most of our time in the first point, so do not be afraid, okay? I need to establish, do some groundwork there, okay? And the, the, the three remaining points will come much more quickly. So first, God's wisdom gives life to the soul. Now this passage is building off of what we've already seen there in verses 13 through 20. Last week, we saw that taking hold of God's wisdom is the greatest blessing in life. And it spoke of some really big and really amazing concepts. It said that, that you know, we saw the bigness and awesomeness of God's wisdom, that it is far more profitable than silver, gold, or precious jewels. That there's nothing that you desire that can compare to it. And, and the reason for that is because unlike earthly treasures, wisdom can create Wisdom can multiply. Wisdom can give life. And, and he's going to get real practical in the passage for today. And so we have an example of like wisdom actually frees us from fear. No amount of money, no precious jewels can do that for you. Right? It will never be enough. But God's wisdom frees us from fear. He goes on and he says that, you know, not only that, but God's wisdom also is described as a tree of life. Through the wisdom that we have received in Christ Jesus, we now have the ability to be restored to a right, pure, and intimate relationship with the God of the universe, the God that we've all sinned against, the God who, like, he has every right to reject us, but yet he gives us his wisdom so that we might be with him forever. And no amount of money, no riches, no treasure, nothing else that this world can offer could do that for you. Only God's wisdom is a tree of life. And in verses 19 through 20, we saw that wisdom serves as the tool in the hands of our maker. And with it, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, created all that there is. With it, he established the foundations of the universe. 
And so when we understand God's wisdom, we understand our purpose, we understand our meaning, we understand the direction that life is heading and what God has for us. We understand who we are. And no amount of money, no prestige, nothing this world can offer can grant you that. And so wisdom is far better. And these are big, big ideas that we talked about last week. And I, I do hope and I pray that it, it just it worked in your hearts to give you a sense of awe and wonder of this wisdom that God offers to us. But now he's going to get really, really practical. He's going to take those big ideas and he's bringing them right down to earth. And so when we come to our passage here, verses 21 through 35, Solomon's getting really, really practical. And so the main idea, again, of verses 13 through 35 is that laying hold of that which is most precious, verses 13 through 20, frees us from fear, verses 21 through 26, to live as God's community, in verses 27 through 35. And so after speaking of the greatness of God's wisdom in verses 13 through 20, Solomon is drawing us in close. I want you to picture him as a father who kneels down and he takes you by the shoulder and he says, son, pay attention to this. Look at this. Consider this. Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. He's saying, my son, keep your eyes fixed upon this truth. Do not depart from my counsel. Guard this sound wisdom that I am entrusting to you. Protect discretion and at all costs, be prudent. Friends, I want you to see how deliberate, how intentional, how active and purposeful this statement is. Basically, this father is giving him instruction that's a matter of life and death. It's, it's, this truth allows us to go on the defensive against potential acts of violence or, or things that would lead us towards death. And so don't read this passage as, as a father saying to a son, listen, son, you know, these are some pretty good ideas for life. Uh, why don't you just kind of, you know, hear me out, tuck these away somewhere. They might come in handy one day, you know, pull them out. When, when it's convenient, when you feel like it, or, you know, in those times where you just kind of made a mess of your life and you've got no other option and necessity requires that you turn to this. Now, he's saying here, guard this, my son. This is a matter of life and death. By all means possible, make every provision to guard your soul with this wisdom, with this discretion, with this prudence that I am giving to you. All right, you need to see this passage as him strapping armor on his son, putting a shield and a sword in his hand, a helmet on his head, and saying, listen, the enemy is already at the gates, and I need you to stand with me to defend this keep. That's the picture that needs to come to your mind as you're seeing this. This is no light matter. This is the difference between between being armed and able to stand victorious against sin, temptation, and death, and being completely unarmed and blindsided by a ruthless and unrelenting army. This is serious. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, Okay, Chad, I, I thought you were going to be telling me about how to overcome fear, but what you said right there about strapping armor on a young boy and saying, okay, you ready to fight? The enemy's at the gate? That sounds really, really scary. Well, and friends, it is. It's meant to be. 
But the difference is being armed to fight against it and being completely unarmed and vulnerable against the attacks. The attack's coming no matter what. So this father is trying to equip his son to be ready to stand against it. There are legitimate fears in this world. God gave us the emotion, fear, as a means of protecting us from true dangers, both physically and spiritually. The problem is that we take this good gift of God, this fear, and it gets distorted by our sin so that we end up fearing things that we should not fear and we do not fear things that we should. So this father is helping us to understand how do we even use this fear rightly? Where is it appropriate and when is it not? And how do we use it in a way that we're not overcome by it? we are more often than not inexperienced when it comes to putting on God's wisdom. The idea of arming ourselves with it to go out and fight an enemy often seems very terrifying, or maybe you're on the other side of things. It seems just kind of ridiculous. seems foolish. Either danger seems to be overwhelming, and we are just just paralyzed by it, or we foolishly ignore the risk and we go flying head on into the enemy thinking we're going to defeat it with a toothpick. But the risk is real. We need to understand that there are real and present dangers both physically and spiritually all around us. And coming to Christ is not simply going to take all of those threats away. All right, Christ is not Calgon, if you remember those commercials from like the late 80s and early 90s. Calgon, take me away. Do you remember that? Right? Like the world's problems are solved through bubble baths. Right? It's just not happening. Right? Coming to Christ is not going to remove all perils and all hardships and all dangers and stressors from your life. In fact, it may even increase them if you're being faithful. Instead... What he does is he arms you with wisdom so that you can stand in the face of them and not be overcome. So that you can stand victorious against the enemy, not be consumed by it. You realize that there were only two people in this world that ever experienced a fear-free life for a period of time? It was Adam and Eve, our first parents. Genesis chapter 2. Early on, like naive and young children, they were able to live without any fear because there were no threats to their life or to their health. There were no threats to their relationships. There was no fear of loss or rejection. They had no fear of the future because bad things never happened. And they didn't have to worry about their things not going according to plan because they didn't have an agenda to their life that was different from God's. And so there there was no fear at all. But they also truly didn't have a fully developed fear of the Lord. I mean, think about this for a minute. They had no concept of God's wrath or God's judgment. No one had sinned. They didn't see that happening. And so there are aspects of God's justice that they had no ability to comprehend. And because there was no sin in the world, they couldn't really see just how good God was, just how holy God was, just how righteous God was, just how loving God was. Because there was not that opportunity to really see it happen. 
Apart from God righteously judging sin, there was no way for God to truly display His saving grace and His redeeming mercy. And so their understanding of the fear of the Lord was limited by their context, by their fear-free life. But we all know what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? Because they didn't fear the Lord, Adam and Eve sinned against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And when they did, their eyes were opened and fear entered into the world. Suddenly, they were afraid of everything. They were afraid of God's judgment. They were afraid of death. They were afraid of their sin being exposed. They were afraid of each other. And they hid in fear and in shame. Adam and Eve hid from God and they hid from one another. In fear, they began to protect themselves both from God and from one another. The intimacy and trust that they had exchanged, they are once shared, they now exchange for animosity and distrust. Fear tore at their union with each other and it led to separation from God. But in that, they grew in their fear of the Lord. And as the history of mankind unfolds, if you read through the Bible, Story after story after story after story after story, we see how mankind, in an effort to live in self-protection and self-preservation without God, as if this is their world and they are God, they followed their sinful passions and their corrupt desires. They believed lies rather than the truth. They held to false thinking. And, they, they, and the result was a, an increase in sinful fear and a, a further separation from God. Fear increased as they pursued their own way and their separation from God increased as they pursued their own way. And in spite of all of that, God still pursued them. God still offered his wisdom to them. He offered uh, an opportunity for them to be reconciled, but they chose instead to fear other things more than to live in the fear of the Lord. And what amazes me is that, you know what, God didn't have to do that. It could have ended right there with Adam and Eve's sin against God. And then all mankind from that point on could live in a state of of pantophobia, of fear of everything, and then face eternal condemnation under the just and holy wrath of God for their sin. But God didn't do that. Instead, Instead, the sovereign God of the universe entered into our fear. When you think about this, this, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and lived a life of perfect obedience to the fear of the Lord. He experienced every temptation towards fear as we do and yet without sin. In all things, he perfectly feared the Lord, committed no sin, and then offered his life as a sacrifice facing unbelievable unjust suffering, humiliation, and excruciating death. All right, don't think to yourself that Jesus does not understand your fears. How many of you have sweat drops of blood and you have begged the Lord, Lord, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but as you will. Has that been anybody here? There have been times where we have felt unbelievable pain and we have asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Christ is the only one who it actually has happened to, unjustly, unfairly. And he took on that so we don't have to. 
Because this is an amazing gift. He died as a substitute for our sin. He took on God's wrath for our sin. The fear that we have fell upon him and he rose again to free us from the bondage of living in fear of other things more than living in the fear of the Lord. His death and his resurrection makes it possible then for us to turn away from our own sinful desires, our own sinful thoughts and beliefs and plans and words and actions to live in a worshiping and adoring submission to God in all things. He has reconciled us to God. And if we repent of our sin, if we would turn away from our fears and our plans of self-preservation and self-protection, to turn to God and trust in Christ. If we keep this sound wisdom and discretion through faith in Jesus Christ, it will be, as it says there in verse 22, life for our souls and adornment for our necks. Through Christ's death for sin and his resurrection for new life, we can now be reconciled to God to live eternally with him, fear-free, in his blessing and in his glory for all eternity. Is this what we're given? Friends, if we have Christ, if we keep this wisdom, it will be life to our souls. And if that is life to our souls, then we do not have to fear pain. We do not have to fear suffering or sickness or death because we know that this is not the end. It is not death for us to die. Death has no sting. And though this may be a momentary affliction, and this affliction may be great, it is light and momentary. And it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Because Christ has risen from the grave, we can be sure that God's wrath against our sin has been satisfied, and we will live with him forever in his paradise. We will not, we don't have to live in the fear of judgment, the fear of condemnation. The soul-killing weight of sin has been destroyed. And so we don't have to, to bow ourselves again to that. I don't have to fear rejection, not from God and not from God's people. Because I and they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He has paid for my sin. And now he has given life to my soul. And that cannot be taken away. But not only that, Christ, the wisdom and power of God, is an adornment for your neck. We saw in chapter 1, verse 9, and we saw again in chapter 3, verse 3, that Christ will make you attractive. When we think about beauty, we think about glory, when we think about all that is worthy of worship and adoration, you do not get more perfect than God. In God, there's eternal blessedness. In God, there's eternal beauty. In God, there's eternal glory. He holds all qualities of attractiveness, everything that is good and perfect, and he holds them without measure. And so you just do not get more beautiful, more glorious, more worthy of worship and admiration and devotion than him. And we were made in his image. We want people to see us. We want people to find us attractive. We want people to find us beautiful and worthy of admiration. 
But rather than turning to God, who we were created in his image, created to be beautiful, what we do instead is we turn towards other things. And in this fear of man, we look to, to physical beauty. We, we look to our lifestyle and possessions. We look to our image. We look to our clothing. We look to our skills and to our talents. We look to uh, our efforts. We look to success and worldly achievements as a means of, of making us attractive in the eyes of people. So that they would see us and they would like us and they would want to be with us. Or in terms of, in the eyes of God, we turn to uh, morality or performing religious activities as a means of trying to buy God's favor. To get him to see me, to get him to love me and to like me and to want to be with me. And we spend our lives in this desperate search for approval and recognition to be seen as beautiful and worthy of affection. But Christ changes all of that. Christ changes all of that because nothing is more beautiful than God. Christ himself is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And when we come to Christ, when he died and rose on our behalf, us unworthy sinners, he remade us to image God once again. We now have the ability to reflect the nature and the character and the purposes and promises of that which is most glorious, of that which is most beautiful, of that which alone is worthy of worship. It makes us attractive. And we know that this is true, that as we live in the fear of the Lord, as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on His beauty, and on His glory, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us that we are transformed into one degree of glory to another. And this comes by the work of the Holy Spirit who is living within us. God, that, is, that is such a great gift. You are given glory. You are made beautiful. And, and you are adorned. And this is because of his work, because of his beauty. You are now co-heirs with Christ. And so, friends, there is no higher position that you could attain to than being a co-heir with Christ. There is there's no, nothing more beautiful, nothing more worthy of acceptance in the eyes of God, not because of anything that is special in you, because you are just smarter, you're just better than other people around you, but because of what Christ has done, that he has perfectly fulfilled all of God's laws and his righteousness is applied to you. And you are being conformed into the image of God's Son. You are now have that ability to reflect His nature and His character, which is altogether lovely. And friends, when you do that, it makes you altogether lovely. There's no house or no job or no dress or no body type that can do that. And ladies in particular, I want you to hear me saying that. It is futile to try to pursue the affections of other people through this false notion of beauty. It is fleeting. What is beautiful is an inward spirit that reflects the nature of the Lord. And that is amazing. That is worthy of commendation. That is worthy of approval. And so seek that. When God adorns us with Christ, that makes us attractive to others. Now, the world who hates Christ is always going to hate Christ, apart from God doing a work in them. 
But when we understand what is truly beautiful, when we come to understand that which is truly most precious, no one who understands what that is will reject those who reflect that which is most glorious. So there is acceptance. There is approval. There is adoration from other people, but it comes not because of anything in you, but because of Christ who is in you. And so you can stop killing yourself, trying to please man, living in the fear of man through image or through achievements. Friends, keep in mind that in a moment, all of it will perish and will come to nothing. When you stand before the Lord, it doesn't matter how talented you are at anything. It doesn't matter how attractive you are. It doesn't matter how great your life was in worldly standards. All of it comes to nothing before the Lord. But the adornment that we see here in verse 22, that is eternal. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be received in the last time. That will not go away. And so, friends, do not trade that for temporary worldly notions of success or acceptance. Stop trying to adorn your neck with worldly trinkets and accept the most precious gift that you could ever receive, the glory of Christ in you. Because there is nothing better. And that frees us from the fear of man. So wisdom... It frees us from fear by giving us life and adornment to our souls. And now that we've established that, that these next three truths will be much shorter. The second way we see God's wisdom free us from fear is by providing security from falling. We are a culture that craves security. I mean, think about the unbelievable amounts of money that are spent on security. We have security alarms, security doors, security locks. We have security locks for the security locks, right? We've got security guards, security dogs, security patrols, security checkpoints, security vaults, security lights, security harnesses, security ropes. We even have security blankets, right? We've got insurance and retirement, investment savings, all for the sake of secured wealth, We want to climb up. We want to make sure that we have the opportunity to advance in our jobs because that gives us more security than what we had before. If you go practically anywhere, you want to get on a plane, what do you got to do? You got to go through security. And we do this to protect ourselves from danger, to give us a sense of peace, to alleviate our fears. And though they might help, friends, we know that they cannot truly keep us secure, can they? You can go live in Fort Knox, and you'll still be afraid. You have those automatic door locks, you know, but then you always wonder, did they actually work? So you install that app on your phone, and you you pay the electrician to come in and do all of those trinkets so that you can push the button, and and the doors lock from your phone, and the lights come on, you know, and it can even play music, and you can kind of do one of those home alone things where you fake the whole party going on in your house, but you still don't know whether it actually turned on. You install security lights in your back, but every time a rabbit goes hopping by, which is in our neighborhood is like every five seconds, that light goes off and you hit the deck and you go running for a gun, right? 
You constantly look with suspicion at the security guard that you hired to protect you, and you're convinced that if that dog that he's holding should break free from the leash, even for a moment, it's going to attack you and rip your face off. But even more subtly, you check your investments every day in fear that the market may drop. Again, you're looking for the next best thing in terms of job because more money means more security. Insurance allows you to run to the emergency room every time you have a scratchy throat. A media that's meant to keep us informed actually creates a sense of paranoia. So we think that there's Ebola in the air, there's a sexual predator around every corner, and you're pretty sure that there's poison in the water. My dearly departed great-grandma is so sweet. Uh, When we had the anthrax scare in 2001, she got an envelope that was sort of strange. She didn't know where it was from, and she was convinced there was anthrax in it, so she called the police. She watched too much TV. Whatever your security blanket is that you cling to, maybe it's a literal blanket, maybe it's a figurative blanket, it can hide you from the world. I'm sorry, it can hide the world from you, right? You can pull it over your head and so that you can't see the world, and that will give you a sense of security. It will hide the world from you, but it will not hide you from the world. You're just sitting there with a blanket on your head. You can run into the panic room when you're scared. But if you're trusting in yourself or you're trusting in man-made provisions, how will you ever, ever know when to come out? But verse 23 tells us that if you keep this God-given wisdom and discretion, you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. You do not have to constantly be terrified that bad things are going to happen. And even when they do, it will not ultimately destroy you. Fear is focused on ourselves. Fear, in fear, God is not in the picture. Or we think that God is distant and far from us, not near to us. In fear, we're seeking self-protection. We're asking that question, what is going to happen to me? In fear, we grasp for control. We try to create a safety net around us to protect us from any and all dangers. When we're afraid, what we end up doing is we end up moving away from the problem and we isolate ourselves from other people. We become highly suspicious of everyone and everything. We hesitate when we should be moving forward. We doubt God and his people. We trust only in ourselves. But friends, we were not made to live that way. Walking on your way securely means living every day in peace and well-being because you know who God is and you know what he has done for you in Christ, that he is active and he is at work even now. He is near you. He is with you. He is guarding you. He is protecting you. It's not hiding yourself away, living in fear from everyone and everything. Instead, it's running to him. Friends, we can dwell secure because the sovereign God of the universe who owns all things and controls all things has your life in the palm of his hands and there is no one or nothing that can snatch you out of it. We know that we can trust our all-powerful and loving Father because he is good and he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Your security is not found in yourself or in your stuff or in that stuff that protects you and your stuff, but in the good, wise, and loving God of the universe who ordains all things to come to pass, 
even loss. He has given you life and breath and everything. You exist right now because of his good grace in your life. He has made it possible for you to live eternally with him. He has given you an eternal inheritance in Christ that can never be taken away from you. There is nothing that you have that God himself has not actively provided for you. You have it because the giver of every good and perfect gift gave it to you. And so if someone were to take it away, you need not fear because God, our great provider, will supply you with all that you truly need. And friends, that is so freeing. The fear of the Lord allows you to focus on God and on others rather than on yourself. It strengthens you to give of yourself, to love and to serve rather than to protect yourself in in fear of hurt or loss. The security that we receive in Christ enables us to reach out rather than to withdraw, to move forward, to move toward problems rather than away from them, to trust and to look forward in hope and expectancy and love rather than in doubt and in question and in mis, you know, this unbelief and, and to cower away and hesitate when we should be moving ahead. Instead of constantly being afraid of losing or getting hurt, God's wisdom exchanges fear for its opposite, which may surprise you. The opposite of fear, according to 1 John chapter 4, is love. It's a perfect love that casts out all fear. We have received perfect love in Christ, and that allows us then to love others at great earthly cost. Because we know that no matter what the earthly cost is, it is only eternal gain. I mean, think about these words from missionaries who gave their lives for the cause of Christ because they understood the security that we have in him. John G. Patton, when he was questioned, they're going to eat you. Cannibals are going to eat you. He said this about our security in Christ. He says, I am invincible until Christ calls me home. He understood that his life was in the palm of Christ's hand and nothing would happen to him apart from God's sovereign will in his life. And so he can move forward without fear, knowing that when his time comes, Christ will take him home and that will be far better. David Livingstone, missionary in Africa, after, you know, after giving his life for the sake of Christ in Africa, was asked about the great sacrifice he made to serve as a missionary. And he simply responded, you know what? I made no sacrifice. It was not a sacrifice for him to do what he did. Jim Elliott, who was martyred in the jungles of Ecuador in January 8th, 1956, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There is no greater security for human beings. In fact, there is no security for human beings other than the security that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a false notion. It is a lie from the pit of hell. 
to think that if I just had more money, if I just had more things, if I just had more stuff, then my life would be secure. It's a lie. The only, but not only will we walk securely, we will also be kept from falling. Verse 23 says, Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. God's wisdom will keep us from acting foolishly or falling back into sin. If we're actively pursuing God's wisdom, we won't be pursuing foolishness. We won't be pursuing sin. We won't be giving ourselves over to death. If we're pursuing God's wisdom, it'll help us to choose our friends and our activities wisely. It'll help us from putting ourselves in compromising positions so that we won't fall back into former sins. It frees us from the fear associated with guilt over our sin. We don't have to be afraid of God's wrath and cower in fear and in shame, beating ourselves up and hiding in the darkness any longer because we know that God, that we have forgiveness in Christ and that allows us then to expose our sin into the light and to find grace and help in type of need. We can actually, we don't have to be ashamed. We can be open and vulnerable. We can talk to other people and get help in our fight against sin because we know that we are not condemned by it. It frees us from that that lie. Christ's blood has covered all of your sin, and so you don't have to live in constant fear and anxiety of trying to live a perfect life before God because you can't. And when you fail, you can get up, you can repent of your sin, and you can believe, and you can move forward in faith and in confidence because you know that Christ has made you worthy. And what that does, my friends, is it turns obedience, it turns following Christ into a joy rather than a terror. And so often we go through life and we think about our life in Christ and it is, it is fear and trembling. We're so afraid we're going to get it wrong. We're so afraid we're going to fall back into sin. We're so afraid that we're going to displease God. And, and guys, don't get me wrong, there's a healthy place for the fear of displeasing the Lord. But we look at displeasing the Lord through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And that frees us up then to say, you know what? I'm glad to obey. I love the Lord. Not I'm afraid of him. And holding fast to God's wisdom in Christ frees you from the fear of failure. That you can try hard things and you can do hard things because you know that God is not going to judge you based upon your performance. Based on whether or not things produce large numbers and lots of apparent seeming fruit. But because God is doing a work and your identity is secure in Christ and that frees you up to follow him gladly and obediently and dependently even at high risk But friends, I just wonder, how is a fear of falling or a fear of failure preventing you from fully obeying God? How is a fear of falling and a fear of failure preventing you from fully enjoying God? And so God's wisdom gives life to our souls and it keeps us secure from falling. Third, in verse 24, wisdom provides rest without fear. Verse 24 says that if you lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. 
I don't know about you, but for me, it seems like fear, anxiety, and worry come to me much, much more at night. During the day, you know, part of it is physical, right? At night, we're just tired. Our guard's down a little bit. We're weary. We're not thinking as clearly. But also, you know, we can't see as well in the dark. That gives intruders an advantage, right? Thieves, they, they work at darkness so that they can hide in the shadows. And at night, we're defenseless when we're sleeping, right? We're susceptible we're, because we're completely unaware of what's going on around you, and that can be cause for great concern. But, but more often than not, um, well, let me, let me just continue with this. I kind of jumped ahead. Um, the truth of Scripture, though, God's wisdom reminds us that God is not some distant, uncaring deity. That God is always present. He is always watching. He's always sustaining. He's always upholding. He's always giving grace to His children. He's always guarding them with his power. There's nothing that happens outside of his good and sovereign plan. And so we can rest confidently knowing that God is up to good, even if the thief tries to break in and steal. If we are in Christ, we do not need to fear dangers or calamities when they come upon us, just as they did to Joseph or Job, because we know that God has some good ultimate purpose in them. But there are other reasons why fear, anxiety, and worry creep in at night and they keep us awake and restless. I mean, during the day, we're, we're busy with all sorts of activities. There are people all around. We're kind of suddenly going from one thing to the next, and that just keeps us distracted. But at night, you're laying there in your bed. It's just you and your thoughts, just you and your desires, you and your wants, you and your guilt, you and your soul. In the stillness of the night, there's not all of those distractions that kind of keep you busy, keep you moving. You're just sitting there in silence, and all you have is just the the spinning thoughts that are running through your head. In those times, what's coming to mind? We, We lay there, we dwell over something that we want or something that we love, and we become anxious that we might not get it. Or maybe we, we can't control the fate of those things that we want and love, and so we became anxious that we might lose them. Or we sit there on our beds and we're riddled with guilt. What keeps you up at night? What thoughts, what desires fill your heads and rob you of sleep? In the late hours, what are you afraid of not getting? What are you afraid of losing? Or maybe... What are you afraid is coming your way? When you're laying there in the stillness of night and it's just you and your soul, what longings and wants and fears come creeping in? Friends, know that behind every fear is a want and a desire. You're looking for something and you're afraid that you're not going to get it, you're afraid you're going to lose it. So what is that that you are desiring? And how do you seek to take them captive to obey Christ? You know, as... uh, as anxious and worrisome as those times can be where we can't sleep, they're actually a gift from the Lord because they allow us undistracted time to really contemplate our souls and to be able to deal with them. When we confront those thoughts, desires, and fears with God's wisdom, one of three things will happen. As we prayerfully seek God's word regarding our desires, thoughts, and fears, we'll either realize, one, that our desire has become sinful, 
Maybe our desire is for a good thing, but we want it too much. We constantly dwell upon it. We sin to get it or we sin when we don't get it. And so in contemplating that desire, that want, that longing, prayerfully, in light of God's word, we realize that we need to repent of that desire and hold fast to the gospel. Another option is as we prayerfully examine those, those desires in light of God's word, we may realize that God is telling us to wait and to trust in him. And that's a good and appropriate response. Or third, we're studying our thoughts and desires in light of God's wisdom. We realize that God is indeed in the process of giving those things that we truly want, we truly desire. Maybe it's not happening the way that we intended or the way we planned, but it, nevertheless, it's happening. And if that's the case, then we give thanks. But that's an opportunity we have in the stillness of night to deal with those wants, those desires. The fruit of taking time to examine our wants and desires and fears in light of God's truth will be sweet sleep. We will rest confidently. Maybe not eight to ten hours a night, but we will rest assuredly in God's nature, character, purposes, and plans that he has for us as we follow Christ in faith. So even again there, it casts out fear. And so God's freedom, uh, or God's wisdom frees us from fear by living or giving life to our souls, by security from falling, by rest from fear. And then finally in verses 25 through 26, giving confidence in the midst of the unexpected. Verse 25 there. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Many times we fear the future. We fear the unknown. We ask that question, what is going to happen to me? I don't know how this is going to work out. And we're afraid that some sudden terror will come upon us. And so what do we do? We, We do everything we can to prepare for every possible scenario. We plan and we replan. We take, you know, we, we study everything. We try to figure out everything that's going to happen next because we want to predict and we want to control the outcome. And sometimes we can go through life like chicken little, constantly in fear of the sky falling all around us. And we try to prevent sudden terrors from happening. And friends, I wish that I could say coming to Christ will do that. But I can say with confidence that it won't. God redeeming us from sin does not mean that the long-standing effects of sin in this fallen world that we live in will never touch us. We're sinners, and our sin has consequences. We live with sinners, and their sin has consequences. We live in a fallen, sinful world that is corrupt by sin. So because of that, there are consequences. And we still live in the midst of it. There's no part of our lives that truly go according to our plans. And sometimes it can be utterly devastating. No one anticipates car accidents or things like school shootings. And no, one, no one thinks and considers natural disasters. And most of them come without almost any warning and they completely decimate everything around them. No one anticipates their child dying unexpectedly. But it happens. And when it does, it's tragic. It's simply tragic. 
But friends, that we still live in the midst of a fallen world. Where we are sinners, we live with sinners, we live in the midst of a sinful world. As much as I wish I could say that, you know, all of that is undone when you come to Christ, the truth is it will be undone. That Christ will right every wrong. That every effect of sin will be overturned. That one day there will be no more pain, there will be no more loss, there will be no suffering, but not yet. We still live in the midst of that world. We are awaiting the full and final redemption where Christ reconciles all things to himself when he returns again. And so from this day to that, there will be pain, there will be hardship, there will be sorrows, there will be sudden terrors that come upon you. But Christ promises that when you take a hold of his wisdom, you will not be overwhelmed. It doesn't mean that there won't be tears or pain or loss. But it does mean that you will not be overcome. One day there will be no more pain or sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, no more calamities or sudden terrors. But between this day or that, we're not to live in terror or dread of the sky falling all around us. We are called to live in the eager expectation of that future day that is yet awaiting us and live today as if it's that day. And nor are we to fear the ruin of the wicked because if we are in Christ, we will stand in the judgment. Right? We will be saved. Christ has paid for our sin and when Christ reconciles the world to himself, when all things stand before him in judgment and one day they all will, those unrepentant sinners who have rejected God and God's offered for wisdom and they, they will face eternal terror like the world has never seen. But we who are in Christ... We'll have every tear wiped away from our eyes by the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. And so, my friends, let that be your confidence. Let that be your hope, your eager expectation. Let the fear of the Lord keep you from every trap and entanglement of sin because He will keep your foot from being caught if you are to pursue His wisdom. So choose the fear of the Lord. Because really, when it comes down to it, it's like this. You can fear and admire the Lord, or you will fear and admire everything else. There are no, there's no middle ground. There's no third way. But in Christ, we have every reason to hope, every reason to know that God loves us and is for us. We have every reason to have confidence in God because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It will happen. So friends, may Christ be our confidence. May we live in light of this truth that taking hold of God's wisdom really does free us from fear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of who you are what you have done in Christ, and what you are even doing now in our lives and leading us towards yourself. And God, I pray that we would not be afraid of anything that is frightening, but would instead fear you. Lord, we confess that we are fearful people, that we distrust you and, and seek to, by our own power, by our own foolish notions of wisdom, 
try to protect ourselves from the dangers that are around us. And we make other things more important than you. Other fears bigger than the fear of the Lord. Father, help us to see just the beauty and the glory of your ways. Help us to relish and delight in who we are in Christ. And to trust in your word and to look to it to know who you are and what you have for us. And Lord, may we believe, not with parts of our hearts, but with all of our hearts. And I pray that in knowing that you have offered us your perfect love through the sacrifice of your one and only precious son, that that perfect love can truly cast out all fear. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.